Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Thou shalt not. No. Murder. Murder. Oh, right, we've already got an interesting disconnect. All right, let's let's get into an old timey illustration, which it's going to strike someone as funny right off the bat, but it shouldn't. <laughs> the following facts concerning a young chief of the Pawnee Indians. Only in Pawnee, it's the Wamapoke Indians, which are a fictional tribe. Uh, the Pawnee Indians are real. Uh, a young chief of the Pawnee Indians of North America are highly credible to his courage, his generosity, and his humanity. At the age of 21, his heroic deeds had acquired for him in his tribe the rank of the bravest of the brave. The savage practice of torturing and burning to death their prisoners existed in this tribe. An unfortunate female of another tribe taken in war was destined to this death. The fatal hour had arrived. The trembling victim, far from her home and her friends, was fastened to the stake. The whole tribe was assembled on the surrounding plain to witness the awful scene. Just when the wood was about to be kindled and the spectators were on the tiptoe of expectation, the young warrior who sat composedly among the other chiefs, having been prepared, uh, I'm sorry, who sat composedly among the other chiefs, having before prepared two fleet horses, with the necessary provisions, sprang from his seat, rushed through the crowd, loosed the victim, seized her in his arms, placed her on one of the horses, mounted the other himself, and made the utmost speed toward the tribe and friends of the captive. The multitude, dumb and nerveless with amazement at the daring deed, made no effort to rescue their victim from her deliverer. They viewed it as an act of their deity, submitted to it without a murmur, and quietly returned to their village. The released victim was accompanied through the wilderness toward her home till she was out of danger. He then gave her the horse which he rode with the necessary provisions for the remainder of the journey and they parted. On his return to the village, such was the respect entertained for him that no inquiry was made into his conduct, no censure was passed upon it, and after this transaction, no human sacrifice was offered in this or any other of the Pawnee tribes. Stories about saving someone's life when it was about to be taken are really satisfying, really exciting stories because everyone everywhere knows killing is bad if it can be avoided. Uh, and, you know, the most horrific things in all of our history involve kind of methodical killing, treating killing as if it were insignificant or just part of uh, everyday life, part of the, the structure of, of society. Uh, so today we're going to open up some cans of worms here. Uh, we'll look at just question 55, uh, what is the Sixth Commandment? We're not even going to get to what it requires. Uh, but in talking about what it is, we're going to end up having to kind of dip into what it means, what it requires of us, uh, and, and kind of begin to preview some of the stuff we're going to look at. Uh, then, <laughs> next week or the week after, and possibly the week after, uh, I've got PowerPoints for you. So we'll be talking about uh, just war theory, which I think is fascinating. And unfortunately for you, I've written some papers on in seminary. And stuff, so. Um, so let's let's look at the, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward. Um, open up to Exodus 20 and you'll find the, oops, I have a Bible, a better Bible over here. You'll find the very brief commandment itself. I don't know if we all have the same translation or if we have different ones. This is verse uh, 13. What does the NIV say? Anybody got the NIV? You got the NIV, Sean? 
And it says, You shall not murder. That's also what the ESV says. Uh, does anybody have a translation that says anything else? So the King James says what? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. And is there a difference between the two is the question. And is it a difference that context easily sorts out? Or is it maybe a, a big enough difference where we need to kind of uh, decide on the translation before we start deciding what it means. Roger. Well, I think the context matters because the chapter right after God institutes capital punishment. Okay. Murder, and so if it's thou shalt not kill, and then, then the way we understand killing to mean just any taking of life, then in the next chapter God seems to contradict it. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I mean, you could take thou shalt not kill very broadly. Uh, to mean don't take any kind of life, right? I mean, if we're not going to qualify it, uh, thou shalt not kill could seem to contradict all of the Levitical designations of how to butcher animals and what portion the priests get and all that kind of thing. Uh, at some point, if you took it, you know, just thou shalt not kill with no context and just took the words as they stood, you might wind up wearing those masks not because of uh, COVID-19 and... Um, regulations by a state, uh, but because, like Janice Monks, you don't want to breathe in any bugs to, to kill them. Um, and they walk with brooms very gently sw sweeping away the ground in front of them so they don't step on any small creatures. Um, and I don't know, I, I respect the heck out of that level of devotion <laughs> to, I really do, a way of life. You know, like most people, you know, yoga pants college sophomore people who are like I love all living creatures and then they're eating you know wings and stuff if you're gonna if you're gonna say you know all life is precious uh, on every level um, at least have the com the conviction to, to go with it I don't think any of us would think this is exactly what's being uh, taught here you know if you swat a fly you've broken the sixth commandment uh, you'd have to shoot it with two guns like in the illustration uh, <laughs> but um that, that is a pretty interesting development. The move from thou shalt not kill being the standard translation of, and uh, in, in a lot of old commentaries, they, they do all that heavy lifting in the first few paragraphs. Hold on now. This means uh, to thou shalt not murder, which is a lot more uh, descriptive. But at the same time, what is murder? I have heard it taught a number of times that what's being um, forbidden here, what's prohibited in the Sixth Commandment is premeditated killing. Um, I want to kill that guy. I'm going to do it. I've planned it. I go and I do it. Now I've broken the Sixth Commandment. If I'm in a bar fight and somebody... You're laughing at the idea of me being in a bar fight. All right? um, or a bar. Or a bar, for that matter. <laughs> good, good point. Um, and somebody swings a, you know, a beer bottle at my head and, and you know, I stick him with a pool cue or something and he dies. Well, that's not what's in view here. So it's, you know, it, it's very... I want to say this is uh, a topic we're not going to exhaust and it's probably not something we're going to solve for the whole church. It's, it's a little nebulous, but... I think by looking at the words involved, and yeah, I'm talking about some Hebrew, uh, we can get a little closer to understanding uh, the meaning, but not within six feet. <laughs> That's not going to age well. All right, so 
The word here in the Hebrew is ratzah. May you spell it? Yeah. Rish. No. Tzad. R A T S A. Guttural stop. Uh, apostrophe, I guess. Ratzah. Ratzah. Yeah, the second one's a pathak. Does that mean sin or murder? That's the question. That's what's used here in Exodus 20, 13. It's used like 50 times in the Old Testament. It's not the most common word for kill. So two of those, uh, two of those occurrences are simply thou shalt not. The giving of the law, the second giving of the law. Whatever it is, don't do it. Uh, 33 of them involves cities of refuge. You guys remember cities of refuge? Yeah. What is a city of refuge? It's where if you accidentally kill someone and you weren't angry at them, you can go there until the next high priest dies and the family, the, I guess it would be the blood avenger, want to kill you for accidentally killing their family. That's generally the right thing. Um, I think we've added in no anger and uh, the idea that it has to be an accident what, to get into the city of refuge anyway. You just have to have killed someone. Uh, then you're safe there in a sanctuary for a time for them to kind of decide. Uh, and ultimately it's to protect people who have, have killed someone. Um, to decide what, like whether or not you did it. Or whether, not. yeah, yeah. In fact, let's look at some, some text here. Um, I mean, think about it. Involuntary is kind of the whole idea of those people who this is for. Now, you can enter into it whether or not it was involuntary. But even though it's involuntary taking of life, it is called a city for ha-rotzeach, meaning this very same verb turned into a noun, the manslayer. So it wouldn't be way outside of the semantic domain of this word to say thou shall not manslaughter. Although I think that's trying to take a noun and turn it into a verb, but you know what I'm saying. Um, we, we can't say that the word used here in Exodus 20, 13 only means premeditating killing because it's used to describe a range of killing that would compel someone to go into a city of refuge, the, the city for the manslayer to go. Um, if you look at, you know, my favorite Hebrew lexicon is Kohler Bumgarner. Um, that one says essentially six or seven different uh, possible definitions ranging from the accidental uh, killing, killing in self-defense, murder, etc., etc. Um, Cities of Refuge described in the very next chapter here, Exodus 21, 12 through 14. Let's uh, look at that and it'll give us, I think, some insight too, because again, the name of the city is the, the word in question. Um, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. 
So what's the distinction made when you're in the city of refuge? It's not necessarily, I wasn't mad, I, my hand just slipped, right? It's like whether or not you were planning. Right, in this case, it is premeditation. Yeah. So that is the case in the city of refuge. Um, and yet you have Ratzah, the person, either way. Uh, so the, the idea of if you're lying in wait or if you're not lying in wait uh, is not the deciding factor when we're looking at the actual commandment not to murder. Uh, so 33 references are city of refuge. 12 of the 50 or so are references to malicious intent, what we would call first or second degree murder. These are, you know, the, that guy waited in the alley, knew when he was going to walk by, jumped out, stab, stab, stab. Um, there's a reference to an animal, a lion in this case, killing someone. This same word is used. Uh, but we might think that because of you know, how savagely a lion would kill a person, someone might get colorful in their language and kind of say it was, it was like a, a bloodbath, a murder. Uh, and there's one just poetic use. So it's not super clear what it does mean, but it is quite clear that we can't snake out from under it by saying, I haven't broken that rule, that commandment, if I didn't premeditate. In fact, I wanted to premeditate, but I was like, just wait, <laughs> wait for the moment, wait for, wait for, you know, did Cain kill Abel? Yes. yes. Now, okay, here's the question. Was it by cunning and premeditated? We don't know it for sure. Like a moment. Yeah, when he said, come out here and talk to me, maybe he just wanted to talk to him and saw the rock and was like, never mind, we've talked enough. Maybe he was drawing him out to hide his body and that's, it seems like that's probably the case. But whichever way, he murdered the guy. He broke the commandment for a certain. Uh, we're not referring specifically to cities of refuge. This usually does refer to murder, but not limited to premeditation. So in the Old Testament, the more kind of straightforward vanilla word for kill is harag. Ha. Is that just how it sounds? Yep. That's the more straightforward word for kill? That's the more generic word for kill, yeah. Okay. We see this one in different settings. Uh, you see it uh, to describe killing in battle, right? Joshua 8, uh, the city of Ai is being sieged and they draw the people out by cunning with a plan and they kill a lot of them and they're said to harag them uh, and we have no indication at all that they might be breaking a commandment in doing this uh, judges seven gideon and his guys blowing trumpets um, you know mostly they're killing each other but you know he's also uh, uh, at, at work uh, even god ordained plans to take cities and defeat armies Usually the word would just be a harag, uh, to kill. Uh, somebody flip over to Psalm 144 and read us the first two verses there. I got it. First two verses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. So we might read that and think, okay, there are times in which one person kills another person and it doesn't 
upset God in that he is the one who trained their hands for war. Now, you could start pushing back on that and say, hold on, this isn't God's best plan for his people. Even David, this great man after God's own heart, isn't the one to build the temple because of all the blood that he shed and he, you know, he was a man. And yes, certainly, but the, what's in view here is the breaking of the commandment. And I think that a passage like that and many others safely puts at least the Old Testament context of war outside of murder. Uh, yeah. Are there other things besides battle that that word is used for? Yeah. But we'll get there. Oh, okay. This is just the first category. Oh, sorry. Um, I think that uh, we've lost the distinction here. When when I was in seminary, I remember seeing a whole bunch of people getting bumper stickers that said, "Who would Jesus bomb?" Um, and others that said, when Jesus said, love your enemies, I'm pretty sure he didn't mean kill them. Uh, and I remember thinking, man, that's an exegetical nightmare. This is a, a hermeneutical dumpster fire that, that you've got going here. You're trying to be clever, but what is the problem with this equivocation? I think if you, if you look at it, a good example I could think of would be like World War II, where, um, you know, the, the enemy, what you're trying to, you know, you're saving millions of lives, potentially, by killing your enemy because uh, you have Hitler in Europe who killed six million Jews and was wanted to completely obliterate them. And uh, you had the Japanese where had, which a lot of people don't remember from history, but they slaughtered millions of Chinese, you know, and uh, so there was a great genocide going on there. So in some cases, you know, it's unavoidable that you're going to have to kill people in order to stop greater uh, destruction from happening and greater genocide. Now, we're going to talk about just war theory for one, maybe two weeks. Uh, so I, I don't want to get into the kind of philosophical or even theological aspects of it. Simply from a text interpretation point of view, what is the problem with that equivocation? With who would Jesus found? Yeah. Or? You say you follow Jesus, and yet you're not necessarily well, against every war or every police officer using force or every uh, intervention that is, might happen. Is it the fact that um, they're cordoning off Jesus and not thinking of Jesus as part of the Godhead and God throughout scripture, there's not simply um, an easy cut and dry like, oh God never kills anyone or tells anybody to kill anyone or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, the answer to who would Jesus bomb uh, is likely um, like 180,000 uh, Syrians in one night, right? <laughs> or Syrians, rather. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament, we don't want to call Jesus part of any Godhead, but uh, as the son, um, yeah, we don't want to separate out 
the will of God into, I don't like the angry dad, but I do like the chill son. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing is usually done by, I think, unbelievers because they have a very limited view. They find the, the aspects of God's character that resonate with them and just cleave to those. But I mean, even beyond that, I think what we're missing is, um, who would Jesus harag? Uh, if he's so against murder, why are we talking about uh, you know, the possibility that there would be a just war in which a lot of people are killed? And that, I think, is the disconnect. Well, and when he returns, I mean, there's going to be... I mean, there's going to be some sort of reckoning here. He's not going to let everybody just skate by, and there'll be a judgment. And right, but he is very clear that we're to let that, him yeah. do that. That's, yeah. not, that's yeah. not anything that his people uh, ought to be trying to undertake. Um, I, I made a t-shirt and I just actually put it in my red box like less than a year ago. And I made it way back then. This was good grief. I started seminary in 2000. 2000. 20 years ago. Um, and it said, it said, what would Joab do? Uh, and then on the back it had the quote that um, uh, Joab said to a massa right before he stabbed him. Um, and, the, and the idea was, if you're going to ask questions in a military context... Maybe look into the scriptures at a military context. And Joab's a horrible example for what to do militarily, but uh, that, was, that was the joke. Um, and if we're going to, you know, I, I remember going into the city rescue mission years and years ago to preach. And in the middle of my message, somebody said, yeah, well, why did we kill bin Laden then if God wants us to love our enemies? And I was like, well... That's not what I'm preaching about, but we could talk about that over lunch here in a minute. Uh, and it really had, had tripped this guy up that he had heard Christians being grateful, thankful, celebratory to some degree, that Bin Laden was no longer breathing oxygen, but was, you know, in a pineapple under the sea and everything. Uh, I, I, I had to try and build this whole kind of lattice of first use of the law, second use of the law, third use of the law, and in talking to him and doing that, I was actually able to get to the gospel uh, fairly quickly, um, while also explaining God does give authority, including the authority to take life. You know, there, there's a reason that when he's talking about God ordaining leaders, the picture is bearing the sword um, to, to human beings. Uh, and that doesn't somehow negate or contradict the commandment to all of us not to murder and not to go run around murdering each other. In fact, the fact that God has put in place these structures is yet another reason not to run around murdering each other because we can, to some degree, trust that there is uh, a worldly power in place that will deal with uh, people who, who wrong us, and we know that if we go around murdering people, we will be uh, dealt with and, and thrown in, in prison. Uh, so anyway, that's, I'm getting a little off topic. That's the first category, killing in battle. Uh, second, uh, the word harag is used, and again, this is the more common word, not the one used in uh, the commandment in Exodus 20, 13. Uh, commands to kill, God-sanctioned killings are almost always called harag. Um, very rarely anything else. Uh, and there's, there's other, and we could go through all these, and I think I intended that we would, but let's not. Um, 
Exodus 29, 11, Deuteronomy 13, they're both harag. Um, you have the very, very kind of general word, taking mut, which is the Hebrew word for death, and making a verb of it, uh, used several times, put to death. And when you read put to death, and your mind goes to, oh yeah, murder. Very careful, that's not what's being said. The person writing down the text uh, was intentionally avoiding calling this even killing. But God who gives life and takes it away is here saying, I'm using you to take it back. Uh, and so the word muth there um, uh, as a noun or a verb, uh, Exodus 21, uh, Leviticus 20, 11 to 16, Joshua 10, uh, Joshua 11. So you hear that they're in the context of the conquest, especially as God is saying, go in uh, to these cities and level them. And you are kind of the striking, vengeful hammer of God in, in all this stuff. Uh, and then there's the word naka, which is to strike down. Uh, and that's also maybe kind of a euphemism. It's used in Judges 3 and Judges 14. Uh, and in all of these cases, and someone switch, flip over to uh, Romans 13, 4. Um, obviously, that's not Hebrew, but it is another instance where I think we see the same thing happening. For he is God's servant for your good. If he do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. The avenger carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So that idea carries over into a New Testament context. An avenger on God's behalf carrying out the wrath of God on the wrongdoer. Uh, that is in the Old Testament generally not this word that's used here. In fact, we, you know, I, I give a bunch of examples here. I don't think it's ever um, the word that's, that's used for murder, uh, used for God-sanctioned hits or uh, attacks or battles that God has commanded to happen. Um, Ratzah is, is not the word to be used. Uh, defending others. Uh, somebody flip over to Psalm 82, three to four. All righty. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And how about 1 John 3, 16 to 18? By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world, world's goods and sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but, but in deed and in truth. Now, you might think that has nothing to do with killing, but what if you can defend someone weaker than you from someone stronger than you? Uh, this has continually been one of the considerations in every catechism, in every systematic theology, in every teaching of the faith, when it comes to killing, taking a, a human life. Murder is always considered a horrible violation of God's law, but if in defending someone weaker, someone is killed, and this is the reason it comes up continually is because it's a part of God's law. Uh, let's 
Actually, is there any discussion on that? Um, I do remember, again, I've told you some of my adventures in Christian ethics class in, in undergrad, um, where I floundered like a fish out of water, but uh, I remember <laughs> probably the same guy who said he wouldn't lie to the Nazis about hiding Jews. Um, he said that, I was trying to make a point, like with a real extreme, a hyperbole, which Aaron, you knew me back then, that was kind of my jam. Uh, and I said, well, what if somebody broke into your house and they were going to rape your wife? I mean, you wouldn't be gentle. And, and uh, this guy was married, I was not at the time. And so he had a particular woman in mind and he said, well, I think what I would do is I would just get on my knees and start praying. <laughs> and I said, you are a coward and a weakling and that wouldn't honor God. And you know, then the professor stepped in. <laughs> but but there, are, there is an extreme pacifism, uh, a thread through Christianity, people who would not, you know, you come in and, and you, you're gonna kill their kids and they're just like, please don't. Uh, and I can't get on board from scripture with that. And I certainly can't get on board via the, you know, the, the fatherly protective uh, shepherd heart that God puts in men and women. Um, you know, the mother bear is not to be screwed, you know, screw with her cubs. Uh, I can't get, I can't understand how we think that, oh no, no, that's the sin nature. Rather than this is something God has put in us to protect yeah, like how the does, weak. How does it honor God in any way to let somebody harm someone that you have the power to protect? Well, and now in in the defense of this guy from Christian ethics class, he didn't have the power to protect anybody from anyone. <laughs> but, but he could have tried, is the thing. Um, but yeah. you know what I mean? Like, how is that in any I, way... You're preaching to the choir. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it either. Um, when we read about the great heroes of the faith, they seem to have the opposite attitude and heart. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's certainly, maybe they'll say, come and take me and put me to death, burn me at the stake. But sort of the opposite of Lot and his daughters. <laughs> right, right, that's a straight up Lot move, isn't yeah. it? I'm very hospitable. Take my daughters and do what you, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's a, that's a different can of worms than the one we have already opened. And we've, we've already, when you've got a can of worms open on the table and they're wriggling, don't add any more. But yeah, that is a interesting pericope in the Old Testament. Uh, here's, here's one that's more controversial, I think. I think most people would understand, you know, it's horrifying and horrible. And by the way, I know people um, who went like, not people that I know personally, but I heard people when we were going through a concealed uh, weapons course talking about, you know, how cool it would be if they saw somebody hurting someone and they pulled their gun and all these things. No, it's not. Everyone, whether you're a police officer, a soldier, a private citizen, you take someone's life and that life begins to, at least threatens to ruin yours. It never makes it better. Um, you know, this is, this is something awful that should always be avoided if possible. Um, that is, I think it's an obvious disclaimer, but maybe it's not obvious to everyone. So in defending others, what can you usually do? Grab someone and get them away. Say, get in my car and let's go to a shelter. Not, I'm gonna walk in there with a two by four and take care of business. I think that there's a, a Jesus way to do that. I mean, Jesus puts himself between the crowd with the stones and the woman caught in adultery. And I firmly believe there's zero chance he was going to let them hurt her. Uh, but 
he doesn't go on the offensive and start spin kicking people. I think there's there's a Jesus way to be protective, and there's a a carnal way that that's self-aggrandizing, and that and that's you know feet that are swift to shed blood. That's one of uh, Alex and I are reading through Romans together, and that's one of the things as he's like, let's see what are people like, and he just starts mining the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, for descriptions of people's sinfulness, and that's one of them. Feet that are swift to shed blood. People who are excited about the notion of hurting other people and looking for justification to hurt people, uh, that's not something that should ever reside in the heart of a Christian. Um, so that, I think, is a very interesting segue to defending your home. And uh, very in the Old Covenant, and again, we're, we are going to do the bridging the context work, I think, next time. But in the Old Covenant... Just after this law is given, two chapters later, uh, we have Exodus 22, 2 to 3. Somebody read that for us. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his stuff. So there is a provision made for if it's dark out, someone breaks into your house, and in the struggle they get killed, no blood guilt. If it's daytime, I guess the idea is there's less confusion. I don't know. There's a distinction made here. Certainly, we don't have the kind of castle doctrine that you see today uh, where people promote the idea that if, if someone, you know, your, your property is sacred. And if somebody is on your property committing a crime, whatever it is, and you shoot them, you should be completely exonerated and get off scot-free. Uh, that's not what we see here, but we do see a allowance for defending one's property. Can you give me that reference? Yeah, Exodus 22, 2 to 3. Matthew Henry, writing on that, says this, If it was in the daytime that the thief was killed, he that killed him must be accountable for it, unless it was in the necessary defense of his own life. We ought to be tender of the lives even of bad men. The magistrate must afford us redress, and we must not avenge ourselves. I think in any of this stuff, one thing to remember is, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, I will repay. If, if there's anything in any of this stuff that's, I'm going to repay for what you did, uh, then we've firmly crossed over into sin territory. It's like talking about this stuff like we're all like in these life and death situations every day. Gunfights and everything. Sam probably is. But. Uh, Nehemiah 4, 13 to 14. Somebody read that for me and then I'll find this Esther down here. Nehemiah 4, 13 through 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their foes. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So when they were rebuilding and being harassed? Right, yes. Sanballat and his boys would come in, and uh, sometimes they would just 
insult them and try to break their spirits. Sometimes they would come in with little guerrilla attacks and, and physically attack and try and break down their progress. And so the question is, what was being defended? This is lethal weapons, but we're fighting to build a wall, right? Um, and it seems to be something that God approves of. Uh, another example would be Esther 9, 1 through 5. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, that was the command, the regrettable and regretted command that everyone everywhere can just take the Jews' stuff and wipe them out at will. Uh, rather than the law of the Medes and Persians can't be uh, rolled back or canceled, but you can give another law that kind of supersedes that one. And so the law that was given uh, for Esther um, was you can defend yourselves. People can attack you if they want, but now you can defend yourselves. As if before they were going to be like, oh, I don't know if legally I can defend myself. Um, but it worked out very well for them. Uh, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the province and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on him, uh, on them. So this is, again, not a sanctioned war. It's civil self-defense, but it looks like fighting and undoubtedly killing. Uh, and so it's under the category of defending your home. Uh, let's look at Jesus on the subject before we wrap it up for today and, and stick a pin in it. Uh, Matthew 5, 38 to 39 is a pretty obvious one to look at. Turned right to it. Say it again. Matthew 5, 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if one slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Certainly, Jesus tells us to pray for people who persecute us, to love our enemies. Uh, and 20-some years later, I think there may be a little something in the bumper stickers. Uh, at least, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he didn't mean get all excited when some of them could be killed. Uh, is it good that bin Laden was brought to justice? Well, of course, yes. And it was brought out through channels, you know... I, I think we saw a video of Barack Obama sitting at a table, the commander-in-chief watching the thing happen and giving direction. It couldn't have been done any more properly. But at the same time, the idea of, all right, let's kill some more, kind of came up even in the hearts of people who should have lamented that the fact that that person's heart was so broken against God's will and, and that his character was so... Uh, denigrated in that he could have used his riches and, and, and amazing intellect and all of his resources for something good and instead decided to use it to, to kill people and ultimately uh, live by the sword and died by the sword. Uh, there's, I think, 
uh, a tension there of, yes, I, I'm Zach Bartles and I approve this uh, bullet at the same time as I'm not real excited and giddy about the fact that someone died this morning in their bedroom. Yeah. Um, when Jesus said, do not resist an evil person, is that where the whole re extreme passiveness comes from? Uh, the the pacifist tradition yeah. comes from like all of Jesus' teaching. Um, it's he's very very much by example and teaching. Um, don't fight back. I mean, what, he could have called on ten thousand angels. He didn't. Um, so yeah, this is this is something we have to kind of reconcile. Old Testament, Old Covenant context, New Testament Jesus teaching, and we're going to be you know we're going to be stuck in this uh, can of worms for a while. But yeah, that's that is where it, where it comes from. And if you ask someone who was, say, Amish or Mennonite, uh, Quaker, Quaker, sure, uh, you make a, a defense biblically for your position of being an extreme pacifist, it wouldn't be hard. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard either for us to say yes, but hold on, what about? And to uh, also biblically, it's a t difficult issue. Anyone who acts like this is super cut and dry, I think, is either selling something or has kind of missed the, the point. Yeah? I, um, I think a good, uh, there's a really good movie about kind of wrestling with this pacifism and all that uh, from, uh, from the right before World War II was when it came out, uh, Sergeant York. I think Gary Cooper played Sergeant York, York in it. But, they allowed him, so he was in World War One. they allowed him, he said, no, I, you know, I'm a conscientious objector, I can't, my conscience doesn't allow me, my religion doesn't allow me to fight. They allowed him to take a week to study scripture, to pray about it, and you know, they allowed him to take some time, and he really wrestled with it, really searched the scripture, and he came back and he said, no, no, I'll fight. And uh, he, but he was, um, it was not um, forced by the U.S. Army to to fight against his conscience, and he had to come there. But that, that was really interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that was a really uh, kind of great example. Of course, he went on to be a great war hero and that sort of thing. But he uh, he really uh, had to come to terms with it and really be convinced from Scripture, and uh, he was allowed to take that time to. To come to that, that conclusion that it was uh, it was justified doing so, and of course, a lot of people who have gone the other way and held fast to their convictions have been heroes in times of war. Without yeah. without, I mean, Hacksaw Ridge is another movie that's it. You know, and, and you know, there are many stories of people who would uh, rush through gunfire to rescue someone, but right. but they would never have pulled the trigger. So yeah, I, I think that it, the as Baptists especially. It comes down to our conscience is yeah, being convinced by the word of God. I think your conscience and your heart, and I think that's what helps you reconcile Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 with a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament, you know, for all of those different commandments that he ends up talking about. When someone brings up Matthew 5, 38, 39, someone else on the other side of the uh, room or the aisle or whatever is probably going to point to Luke. Uh, chapter 22, verses 35 and following, uh, in which Jesus, as he prepares his disciples for his own uh, temporary absence and then permanent, uh, or not permanent, he's coming back, but uh, for the rest of their lives, 
Uh, he's going to be gone. The Spirit's going to be with them. And as he's preparing them, he says this. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but how, now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered amongst the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Uh, and that would often be something that was a kind of key verse for uh, the non-pacifist side of things. Jesus was even telling his disciples, you need to have a sword because times are tough and things are dangerous. And yet it's very shortly after when Peter pulls his sword and Jesus says, what are you doing, yeah. man? You and, live by the sword, you die by the sword. And you don't. In, in the scriptures that talk about the, the acts of the apostles, you don't ever see them pulling a sword. Right. You see them like kind of sneaking out of cities. You see them getting arrested, but you don't see them fighting. Well, maybe part of that has to do with who the apostles are. Uh, what we know of Paul, if he pulled a sword, they would have just laughed at him, taken it from him, and beaten him for sport. But um, yeah, certainly there's no, there's no like, can, that, that line of Jesus has been often taken as a spiritual, you know, you need the sword of the spirit, and you go, hold on, you're spiritualizing something without much reason to, much context, but maybe the reason is that that verse just kind of hangs there, and it's not a thread that's ever picked up throughout the book of Acts or, or anywhere else in the New Testament, or in the early church history. Yeah. Um, I think we have to really quickly uh, kind of, you know, maybe we just leave it there. Maybe you, you think yeah. about those two passages. Uh, we'll let Roger close us with a, a brilliant closing thought. And then... Well, one thing about that is... And then, hold up. And then we'll uh, next week perhaps resume with the idea of these two passages. Matthew 5, 38. Luke 22, 38. Hey, look at that. And... How can they coexist and not contradict one another? And how do we then, as, as believers, follow Jesus' teaching when it seems to, in one hand, push us toward extreme pacifism and, on the other hand, allow for defending yourself or others? And that passage about Jesus said, if you, if you have a sword, bring it. The disciples immediately said, we have two swords, and then he had to limit them with that. Oh, he, doesn't he say that's enough? Yeah. Yeah. He says that's enough, yeah. But like I said, we'll pick up with those passages to discuss next week. Cool. Uh, and then we're going to get into even more into the weeds. So if this hasn't been your cup of tea, maybe take a couple weeks off. Because we're <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you're not able to be here, you can always join us on Zoom. And then Sean wouldn't be all alone in that oh. Zoom room. Oh, I'd be at my friend's house. He doesn't have internet. Oh, all right. Well, we're going to carry on with or without you. <laughs> Uh, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for these uh, passages that just make us struggle. These tensions of how do we have the heart of Jesus while well, we live in this world where uh, evil men often will try and, and take advantage of the innocent. And Lord, we, we want to have the heart that, that Jesus has, the heart that, that you would have us have. We want to be uh, compassionate and loving and forgiving and we don't want to be weak and cowardly. We, we, Lord, we want to find uh, the place where we can be uh, the most God-honoring citizens and uh, humans that we can be. Lord, we pray as we continue to look at different passages, different commands, different uh, scenarios that unfold in the Old Testament and the New, that, Lord, you will shine light on these things for us. 
and help us uh, to more deeply understand the sixth commandment. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.